0: This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish, or and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. I think Peter has a lot of guts saying that about Paul. (laughs) There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, that take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and to the day of eternity amen let's look to the lord in prayer our father we are so grateful to have your word we're so grateful that you have let us in on your saving purpose you've told us what you have planned for this world and for history we're eager to see it come to its culmination in the return of our lord we pray that you will as Peter has written here for his readers, you will strengthen our minds and our hearts through this reminder this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One massive New Testament teaching, which from an Old Testament perspective was certainly stunning for the first generation Christians, particularly Jewish Christians in the first century, that teaching is the return of Jesus Christ in glory to bring his, the kingdom of God to its consummation. From an Old Testament perspective, there was the anticipation that the Messiah would come, of course. But when he came, he was to establish the kingdom of God, destroy his enemies, the righteous would be vindicated, and the kingdom of God would be brought on earth, and we're done now there were clues otherwise but that's the overarching uh, impression that was left and that certainly was the anticipation and when we come to the new testament in the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of jesus and his ascension we do have that eschatological moment that was what was anticipated it came he came he ushered in the new age he re- was raised to the to new life into the age to come And he has inaugurated, that's the word, inaugurated the kingdom of God. The new age is here. The kingdom of God has come, but only in its inaugurated form. We know that because his kingdom, his rule is still being contested. There's still sin. There's still suffering. The reins of the government don't belong Obviously, in the hands of Jesus, they belong to evil men who rule over the righteous many times uh, to, to oppose them and to oppress them. The kingdom of God is here. It has been inaugurated. The king is in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. He rules. But that rule is being contested. And with all of the sin and suffering, we see that the kingdom has not come in its fullness and its full glory. That was part of the of the teaching of Jesus' um, parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, He had to show us the mysteries of the kingdom. There's this mystery aspect to it that the kingdom did not come immediately in its full glory. But there's a mystery aspect to it. The kingdom of God now, here, now, grows, but it grows slowly and imperceptibly through gospel advance. And a sower will sow the seed, and the kingdom grows that way. Meanwhile, the wicked one sows weeds among the wheat and there's still all kinds of trouble like that until finally in the very end the weeds will be gathered up or in the other parable that he tells the fish will be gathered and God's people will be safe and his enemies will be judged. In the meantime, then, we wait with an eager hope that Christ will return that he will come the second time and bring this kingdom that he has established to its final culminating glory, and that is the hope of the church. Peter writes about that in 2 Peter chapter 3. He has written this letter, 2 Peter, to encourage his readers in the faith and particularly to encourage his readers with regard to false teachers that have come into their presence. If you'll read 2 Peter and then read the epistle of Jude. You'll notice uh, some massive overlap between them. One of them borrowed from the other, not just borrowed from, but actually repeated the other. Peter borrowed or repeated from Jude or Jude from Peter. We're not sure which. Uh, there's been discussion on that, which one was written first and who borrowed from whom. We don't know all of that, but one obviously borrowed from the other with the same intent to warn about false teachers who have come, and in particular. Peter is warning not only of false teachers generally, and of, but of a particular false teaching that had come into to affect his people, and that is this false teaching that denied the return of Jesus. Some time had passed since the, resur- since the ascension of Jesus, enough time evidently to allow re- Peter's hearers to question whether or not the return would actually be be a thing that will happen. Peter writes, probably from Rome, here to answer that problem in the church. His focus is not just false teaching generally when we get to chapter 3, but especially with focus of those who deny the return of Jesus Christ, verse three tells us that. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. In verses one and two, he says he's eager to remind us of uh, of a blessed hope that we have. He tells us to remember these promises and these prophecies that we're familiar with from the Old Testament prophets, from Jesus Himself that have been given to us by His apostles, and he affirms that they have a sincere mind that's the word the phrase he uses here to stir up your f- sincere minds that as evidently they have not yet been contaminated by this false teaching so he's not writing to correct and rebuke them he's writing to strengthen them and to stir up their sincere minds with regard to truths that they already know and he wants to remind them of to deepen their convictions, stir up their minds with things that they believe and ought to believe. But in reference to these false teachers. Verse 3 gives us a brief glimpse of these false teachers, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. That is, they not only deny the return of Christ, they mock the idea. Come on, you really think that Jesus, who was here 2,000 years ago, is going to come again? What planet are you from? You really think that? It might be just naturalistic influences in their thinking. There might, there's others going on that we'll see here in just a second but they're just mocking the idea of the return of Christ. And the reason they, the, on which they argue is verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For, here's their explanation, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That is, you really think Jesus is going to come and bring this cataclysmic judgment? That has never happened. And you think it's going to happen? There's no precedent for that. God has never intervened in human history in such a way as that. You really think that's going to happen? And the bottom line of it is, there's not going to be some judgment. You really think that's going to happen, this idea of judgment coming against people who make mistakes? And you'll notice in verse 3 how Peter characterizes their motives. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. That is, there's a moral dimension to their denial of the return of Christ. And that's pretty obvious. If you are determined to pursue your sin, the last thing you want to believe is the return of Jesus and the coming judgment. You've got to get rid of that. And so let's not just deny it. Let's mock it, make it incredible. And so it won't stand in the way of our behavior. And Peter writes, beware of these people. Remember, remember that our Lord warned us about them. He said they would come. They're here. Well, that's verses 1 to 4. In verses 5 to 9, Peter gives us his response to these false teachers. There are basically three responses, but let's look at verses 5 to 9 again. They deliberately overlook this fact. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Notice how he begins this in verse 9. They deliberately overlook this fact. They intentionally forget doesn't really make sense, but they intentionally forget. They deliberately overlook. That is, there are some considerations which, in order to maintain their denial and their mocking of the return of Christ, there are some considerations that they have to ignore. They would get in the way. This is what rips me, actually. This isn't a side here. This isn't really, this rips me. It's it's the same thing from liberal critics ever since. They it, Part of the comfortable thing about being a critic and a liberal, a critic of the scriptures is you don't have to listen to the facts. You don't have to do the, you just make your denials and act as though you've got the truth. And especially if you say it smugly, then it works. And it's been the, the bane of existence for evangelical scholars that we have, that they have to spend so much time answering the critics and so often it's answers that have been long given and it's arguments that are tired and worn out and evidently they're unaware of them or they're just ignoring them deliberately forgetting them and so the evangelicals have to come back and say no you're forgetting this you're forgetting this you're forgetting this you're forgetting this and you pile up the evidence and they just scoot that aside Warfield made a wonderful comment about that one time. He said, he, "He said with a with a Herodian indifference, with a Herodian indifference, they have murdered a thousand facts that stand in the way." That's been the critics ever since. Just ignore what you need to ignore in order to maintain the denial that you are advancing. So they conveniently overlook some specific things that would hinder hinder their case. Now remember their argument. One, there's been this long delay. You really think it's going to happen? And two, all things continue as they were. God's never intervened in history before. You really expect that to happen now? That's their argument. Peter says they intentionally forget three truths. Number one, verses 5 to 7, God has intervened in human history before. They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But By means of the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He's obviously referring here to creation and the flood. Creation, Genesis 1, as we read this morning in our scripture reading, Genesis Flood, Genesis 6 through 9. The very waters that God used in the creation of the world were later used to destroy the world. And that sinfulness of man got so bad that God finally steps in and he destroys them all, except for Noah and his family. And the world that then was, he says, is gone perished. And the world that now exists is stored up for judgment also by the same word that destroyed that world. You sit back comfortably in your smug unbelief, but it's only because you have conveniently ignored your history. The point is then that Peter is making in these verses, verses 5 to 7, is that God has not left himself without a witness. There is real precedent of God's intervention in human history. Peter might also, at this point in history, he might have pointed to a number of other interventions of God in history. Some predicted, some brought about by natural disasters, some brought about by other means, through warfare or whatever. God has made made himself clear in judgments in history past, but Peter instead of just overlooks all of those. He could have pointed to... Egypt, Babylon, Greece, Medo-Persia, Rome, coming. But he overlooks all of them, and he points to the big one. Genesis 6 to 9, God came in judgment, as he said he would. So Peter's first response is, the promise of coming judgment is not without precedent. God has interfered and intervened in human history before. Now in verses 8 and 9, Peter takes up the question of delay. It's been so long. And so he tells us, this is his next point that they forget, verse 8, the delay of Christ's return has really not been that long. Do not overlook this one fact. They overlook facts. Don't you overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Citation here is from Psalm 90, the psalm that extols the eternality and self-existence of God. Psalm 90 and verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past or as a watch in the night. Now, Peter, and for that matter Moses in Psalm 90, is not giving us strict mathematical calculations that one year equals a thousand years for God, one day is a thousand years for God. He's simply stating the fact that God is eternal, that he sits above time. One of the most mind-bending aspects of the doctrine of God is the timelessness of God. Don't ask me to explain it in depth. It bends my mind just like it does yours. God is not subject to time. He's eternal. Time, in fact, is his creation. He sits above time. He's not subject to time. He, of course, knows the difference between what has happened and what will happen, but God sits over time watching it all. Maybe it's right to say, as an eternal present. He's eternal, he's independent, he's self existent. God sees the end from the beginning. He tells the end from the beginning, and he tells the end from the beginning because he's decreed the end from the beginning. All that comes about is his decree. He has worked it out. And God then is not subject to time as we are. God is neither helped nor hindered by time. Unlike you, God is never in a hurry. And really unlike you, he's never late. Time is a different thing. To God, and so patience with God is not a great thing. He sees the whole as present, and you think it's been a long time since He has come. Well, not even a day has passed. It's not been that long. From God's perspective, His patience, which is eternal. His patience is an easy thing because he sees the end from the beginning and he's not affected by time as as you and I are. So, number one, Peter says, you've forgotten history. God has intervened. Number two, it's not been that long for an eternal, timeless God. And then number three, his third reason for this delay, verse 9, God has a people whom he intends to save. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Patient toward you. I think the NIV translates that patient with you. I think the ESV gets the sense a little better here. Patient toward you, patient with regard to you. I think the idea is God is patient for your sake. God is patient for your sake. I think the, uh, the, 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 the uh, Greek manuscripts that lie behind the King James Version uh, read differently here, and it says God is long-suffering to us, word. He's long-suffering to us, not you. I think the net is the same. He is speaking of those who are saved. God has been patient with those who are to be saved. God's purpose in this age is to save a people for himself, and he's patient to carry out that purpose infallibly. In fact, God has a purpose in this age to save men and women from every nation and tribe under heaven. That was the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. In your seed, in your offspring, all of the families of the world will be blessed. In Matthew or in Luke chapter 19, Jesus tells a parable that, and he gives us the clue to the parable. It's this parable about this landowner, and he 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 leaves for a long time on a journey, and leaves his tenant his 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 servants in charge of the whole estate. And he tells this parable. Luke gives us the clue, clue to it. He tells this parable because some thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear, and to correct that notion, he tells this parable. Landowner goes away; it leaves his servants in charge, and the point of is very obvious that he has left us in charge in this age during his physical absence to serve him through the advance of the gospel and through living for him. And then, in Matthew chapter twenty-four, Jesus tells us this gospel of the kingdom. This is a great Olivet discourse, telling us the course of this age. This gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then. The end will come. Paul spells that out in detail in Romans 9 to 11. This gospel has been dammed up in Israel for too long, and God has a universal cosmic saving purpose. He's going to save from all of the families of the world. And so now Israel's been set aside for a time, and the gospel has made its way out to the Gentiles, and it's making way around the world. And after that, Israel will be saved, and will have universal salvation. Not every last person, but God will save the world and reclaim the world through a sampling of men and women from every nation and tribe under heaven. And this then is why the delay. God has a purpose to save the world. He has a purpose uh, to save people from every nation. He has sent his son to die for them. And the reason he hasn't returned yet is that, well, the word he uses here is they've not yet reached repentance. Not all of them have come in yet. As he says in verse 15, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. This is the doctrine of election. This is the doctrine of God's sovereign saving purpose. God has chosen a people whom he will save from the world over, and nothing will interfere with that. Even the increasing wickedness of the world, God is patient with it because of you. That's what Peter says. He's long-suffering for your sake. I was saved in 1964. I'm really glad Jesus did not return in 1963. God is patient for your sake. So why is God holding back? We see the evil rampant in our world and it's Increasing advance. The the question that often comes to mind to me, how can God be so patient? Peter gives the answer. It's for your sake. He has a people whom he's going to save, and he will save all of them. Now this brings to mind some questions. What will it be like when that last one comes to repentance? Then the end will come. And he emphasizes then in verses 10 and following, that day will come. The Lord Jesus will return. And the point of verses 10 and following is that when he comes, there will be no mistaking it. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. I just got to tell you the, the Greek word here, Zedon. It's an onomatopoeic word. It's one of those words that sounds like what it means. Kind of like roar. If you say it right, it just sounds like what it is. The heavens will pass away with a roidzedon, a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done in it will be exposed. So he's speaking then in terms of the signs in the heavens, the cataclysmic judgments associated with the return of Christ. Jesus spoke of that. Peter has alluded to the Olivet Discourse before already. He's doing that here in Matthew chapter 24, verse 27. Jesus says, As the lightning comes from the east and shines from the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. There'll be no mistaking it. Remember that passage, Matthew 24? Jesus talking about his return, and he says, You're going to have false teachers come and false prophets come. Don't worry about it. They're going to come and tell you, Hey, he's come already. Come on out in the field. I'll show you. Or hey, he's come already. He's up at, up in the room at our house. And come, come and see. Jesus, don't bother. When I come, you'll know it. There'll be no mistaking it. And that's what Peter is driving here. And Pete. Jesus, in Matthew 24, says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven, To the other. That's what Peter has in mind here. That day, notice he says, will come. It will come. And when it comes, there'll be no mistaking it. It'll be sudden and it will be cataclysmic. Now, there's been discussion among interpreters how do we take this destruction language? Do we take it in an exactly literal way that a fire will consume the world? entirely dissolve it, It will be some kind of nuclear meltdown, the elements burning, Uh, God's going to cremate this world and replace it with something? Is that how we're to understand this? I doubt that that's the way it is to be taken. I don't think that's what Peter or the other uh, passages in scripture that speak of this have in mind, even though they use destruction type of language. I don't think it's intended to convey the idea of a complete Uh, destruction and uh, replacement, but it's speaking of a restoration of the world. For example, back in verses 6 and 7, he speaks of the then world before Noah that was destroyed. Well, those elements are still here. Uh, It's not annihilation and replacement. It's a restoration, a complete redoing of the entire world. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 65, which has this new creation theme explained at some length, we have the new heavens and the new earth explained almost entirely in terms of the present order of things, a restoration of of what's coming. And I think what's very appropriate here and relevant is Romans chapter 8, where Paul speaks of the groaning creation Waiting for liberation, not replacement, for liberation, that this world will undergo some kind of great renovation and it'll be renewed. It is like with the resurrection of the body. It is important that the resurrection of the body be part of the saving process because God is intended to restore the whole man, and so with creation itself. God is intended to restore this world. His created purpose will not fail. Satan will not win. He'll win back this world and he'll restore it. And the idea then is one of, of a judgment scene, a disillusion of the old way of old order, the sinful and fallen world, and a new world order has begun. That term was popular in politics some time back. This is the new world order that will come and commence with the return of Christ. Now, we in this inaugurated form of the kingdom, we have sensed already all things being made new. That is the character of the Christian life. We live in this present evil world, and yet we've been caught up into the age to come in Jesus. And we find ourselves living with this tension between two worlds. We've tasted the powers of the age to come. We've we've been there. We've gotten there. And yet we haven't. And we're caught between these two worlds. And what he's telling us here is that one day that new world order will come in its fullness. Jesus will come. And that old world will be destroyed and he will bring in this new order. And verse 13 tells us, notice, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine describing this world now in these terms? This world's characterized by righteousness. It most certainly is not. But one day it will be. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That day, Peter says, will come. Eschatology in the scriptures is never for its own sake. It's never just speculative. It's meant to impact us in our daily lives. And so in verses 11 through the end of the chapter, Peter here presses the implications of all of this. Notice the words at the beginning of verse 11, 14, and 17. Verse 11, since, Then he's going to draw a conclusion. Verse 14, therefore. Verse 17, you therefore. So you see where Peter is going with all of this. He's drawing some implications for all of this about the return of Jesus and this judgment scene that is coming. What are they? How do we live in light of Jesus' return? That's the subject of these verses. Verse 11, we live as people who who know God and who have been transformed by his grace. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Living then as people who are transformed by grace. And we do that by waiting, eagerly waiting for, And notice that other word in verse 12, hastening the coming of the day of God, speeding it up. How do we do that? Has God not fixed a day when that day will come? How do we not just wait for it eagerly, speed it up? All I can think is that Peter is using this language here to speak of our activities in serving Christ and living for Christ as he defines in verse 11. Living in holiness and godliness. In terms of God's saving purpose, it is being diligent in the advance of the gospel until that last one reaches repentance. How are we to live in light of Christ's return? Verse 11, live as people who know God and are transformed by his grace. Verse 14 explains that further therefore beloved since you are waiting for these be diligent to be found in him found by him without spot or blemish and at peace in light of Jesus return we are responsible to be diligent notice it to be diligent to be found by him how without spot or blemish and at peace that is at peace with one another Here's how we are ready. Verse 17 goes further. We are ready for the return of Christ when we are steady in faithfulness. You, therefore, beloved, know this beforehand. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's a negative and a positive aspect or side to this exhortation. One, don't be seduced by this false teaching. Maintain your steadiness in the gospel. And two, in fact, so far from falling away, grow and increase your understanding and stability in the things of Christ. Peter says, this is what you and I ought to be doing in light of Jesus' return. Live as people who are transformed by grace. Wait eagerly. We ought every day to live in light of that day. Shame on us that we don't. Stand firm and, in fact, grow and increase in, your, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we do these things, we'll be ready when that great day comes. Amen.